自動でお風呂を沸かします。And welcome to another episode of No Such Thing as a Fish, a weekly podcast coming to you from the QI offices in Covent Garden. My name is Dan Shriver. I'm sitting here with Anna Chazinski, Andy Murray, and James Harkin. And once again, we have gathered around the microphone with our four favorite facts from the last seven days. And in no particular order, here we go. Starting with you, Chazinski. My fact is that instead of being one of the founders of the USA, Benjamin Franklin almost stayed in Britain to found a swimming school on the Thames. This was his big idea in his early 20s. So he lived in London. He was working for a printer as a printer's apprentice. And he liked to swim. And he, noblemen used to queue up along the sides of the Thames and be like, what is this guy doing? He's swimming. Which bit of the Thames? Is this sort of London? So it was the he, Thames? he used to swim from Blackfriars to Chelsea, which was three miles, I think, or roughly three miles. So that bit of the Thames. How long was he here for? He came back and forth, I think. So he was yeah. here initially for a few years. And then he considered setting up a swimming school because he was teaching all these noblemen's kids to swim. And he asked a friend for advice as to whether he should. And his friend said, I don't think that's a very good idea. Why don't you come and work for me in America again? So he left Britain in about 1726, I think. He also, one of his lesser spoken about inventions uh, is that he invented basically flippers for the hands. <laughs> this is how much he loved swimming. He oh, invented yeah. hand flippers for yeah. while you were swimming. That's and I think idea. he was a child, yeah. in fact, when he did that, wasn't he? He was about 11. Yeah. yeah. Another crazy invention of his, which <laughs> I just love his lesser ones. Basically, he invented a method for getting a book down from a bookshelf. <laughs> right. If it was way too high, he invented a, what, a what's called the... No, it was called a book arm. Oh. And it was basically <laughs> an extended stick that you would reach up and grip onto books and take them down oh, off the yeah. shelf. Yeah. Have you heard his uh, pseudonyms? Because no. he had a load oh, of he pseudonyms. He had female ones, didn't he? Yes, he did. So he, when he was a boy, he wanted to write in his brother's newspaper and his brother didn't let him. So he wrote in the guise of a middle aged widow, Silence Do Good. That was the widow's oh, name. Yeah, I've heard that one. The yeah. later one was uh, Polly Baker, who was a fictional woman who had had children out of wedlock and been punished for it. And there was Alice Addertongue, who was another widow, Celia Shortface, <laughs> Martha Careful, and Miss Busy Body. <laughs> He also, the, one of the women you mentioned, and I can't remember which one, uh, maybe the first one. I hope it's Celia Shortface. <laughs> it's not Celia Shortface. <laughs> was he created her quite ahead of his time in order to show the one who had um, illegitimate children and stuff. Oh, uh, Polly Baker. Yeah, Polly yeah. Baker was created to comment on society's prejudice towards women and their attitudes to yeah. women who'd been mistreated. Yeah. Oh, wow. Life. Amazingly forward thinking. Yeah. I think he had more female pseudonyms than male ones. Yeah. I certainly found a lot more female ones. I don't than like ones. Polly Baker because it's not like a funny one like the others, is it? That is a typical man's response, you know. Polly Baker would have been all over that. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, He, um, when it was hot, he said you should you should sleep in two beds. Uh, What at the same time? Uh, He said you should sleep in one until you're uncomfortable, then you just go to the other one. Uh, He'd obviously not discovered the flip the pillow over to get the cold side. (laughs) No, it's been attributed to him, but I don't think he invented that. Um, He should have invented a claw to turn it (laughs) on. Yeah. Um, but he also said it's okay if you just have a very large bed and you can just get up and go to a different bit of the bed. I don't, sorry, I don't see why you'd have, if you have a large bed, you don't have to get up and go to another part of the bed. How large a bed was he imagining? Really large. You're going to get a taxi to the other part yeah. of the bed. You get up, you pack a snack yeah. and a few toiletries yeah. and you head off. Yeah. Top left corner, please. <laughs> um, but he also invented a hand, this isn't really an invention, um, but he invented a device by which he could unlock and lock his bedroom door from his bed without having to get up. Really? So maybe that was also a cooling device. Prince Albert invented one of those as well. Did he? 
Oh well, they're probably having a big fight up in heaven right now over over rights to the property, yes. yes, to the incredibly successful invention that they both came up with that everyone can't do without these days. Do you know? Until the 1930s, there were um, water slides along the Thames. <gasps> were there? What? Yeah, floating baths, temporary lidos, pontoons, and water slides all the way along the Thames because oh. people used to swim in it so much. My God, that's amazing! And now it's illegal. So the first ever swimming book uh, was written in 1539 by a German guy called Nikolaus Weinmann or Winmann, and it recommended various different swimming aids for buoyancy, which included belts made of cork, which they used in life preservers for centuries, bundles of reeds, and my favourite, air-filled cow bladders. Oh, that's good. Nice. Yeah. They had, I think people used pig's bladders in in England in the 16th century for it. Because the first guide to swimming in Britain, um, it was written in response to that because it was thought that that didn't really tell you how to swim. It more just sort of (laughs) described swimming. I mean, all I've got is how to float from it. So, you know, I haven't read the whole thing. It is in Latin, but... (laughs) If you don't have bovine bladders, then you're you're buggered. So this guy, the first guide to swimming was written by a guy called Everard Digby in 1587. He is not to be confused with... Everard Digby, who was involved in the gunpowder plot, or, in fact, the father of Everard Digby of the gunpowder plot, who's also called Everard Digby, but also don't confuse this guy who wrote the swimming book with the guy who replaced him as a clergyman, who was also called Everard Digby. Um, <laughs> Wait, the guy, what, one of the gunpowder plotters wrote a swimming guide? No. That's why I said don't confuse So you're them. confusing. You just... confu- I've, I have confused them already. There was one thing Anna asked you to do and you just got I sort of didn't it. hear the bit where she said don't and I just heard confuse him with... <laughs> was Everard Digby just like the John Smith of its day? I like think everyone he was must have that. been. <laughs> what a great world to live in. Where everyone's called Everard Digby. Oh, Every he's... Tom, Dick and Everard Digby has been coming in here. Can I just say, the first person to get a call back to Everard Digby. Yeah. <laughs> So Everard Digby, the (laughs) swimmer, he was a clergyman who wrote a guide to swimming. And where he comes out most strongly, as I think uh, BBC History was reporting on this, is in exhibitionist swimming. Um, So he describes (laughs) what you should do. Is that like synchronised swimming? Well, yeah, I think um, he's sort of like the grandfather of synchronised swimming, really, because he explains how you can look good in the water. Um, So he advises things to do while swimming. Uh, He shows you how to sit on the water while keeping afloat, carry things in both hands across the water, swimming holding one foot with one hand useful he says <laughs> useful if you happen to get cramp oh, right. so before okay. you ridicule that's yeah. great swimming while dancing with both legs in the air <laughs> <laughs> also maybe useful for cramp and this is the best one uh, he also explains how to swim whilst cutting your toenails in the water by lying on your back bringing your knee up to your chest and using a knife so using a knife using a knife to cut your toenails in the water whilst floating on that's, your back that's really cool yeah it yeah. sounds great uh, the, I was reading about strokes because um, breaststroke seems to be the oldest stroke that we know about there's in fact cave paintings in Egypt where they show people doing breaststroke how do you know um, really yeah I read, it on, I read it on no not how do you know it's <laughs> how do they know that it's breaststroke I guess it just looks like it the motion looked right. like it but there's no motion in cave paintings have, uh, no, they, I think I they've got one of those peelable books but in stone so yeah. you, know, you flip the book <laughs> and you, you flip, see it moving yeah you flip the rock yeah you've got to run really fast from one cave and, to the other and that's very untrue to say there's no flip paintings have really? you seen the documentary by, by Bernard Herzog. Oh, so good. Extraordinary. Andy, do you know about this? Is it called Cave of Forgotten yeah, Dreams? Yeah, Cave of Forgotten Dreams. No. They have, there's one drawing of a, of a horse. They would draw horses and yeah. they would draw them with like five legs in motion. 
And you kind of think, why are they doing that? Why does it look like that? And they realize that if you had a fire inside this cave and you were looking yeah. at it, the flames would create the motion. No. Like a flicker yeah. so effect. They, yeah. Exactly. So it would give it like flipbook kind of artistic running horse on the inside or, of a cave. Or breaststroking. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, breaststroke, really old thing. Um, this is a story that I read, which I really like. 1844, breaststroke was the big stroke for swimming in England. Two guys came over, Native Americans, had a race. And they used front crawl. Yeah. Totally whipped the ass. Like, they just <laughs> killed this race, right? But no one liked it because they thought it looked un-European. This is how British British people are. They did not take on that stroke until 1873. That was in 1844 that that happened. So yeah. it's wow. another generation, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, whole new... Thousands of hours wasted. <laughs> um, get this. In the 1900 Olympics, there was a 200-meter obstacle swimming course. <laughs> <laughs> You were able to swim with the current because it was in moving water, but you had to make it past three obstacles. Uh, you had to climb over two of them. One was a pole and one was a row of boats. And then you had to swim under the other one, which was another row of boats. Sounds great. Why that's... have we not kept this? Yeah, that sounds amazing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I've got another Olympic one that I just want to flag up. Uh, 1896 yep. Summer Olympics. Athens. Athens. These were all of the sporting events for swimming. Okay. Okay. 100 meter freestyle? Yeah. 500 meter freestyle? Yeah. 1,200 meter freestyle? Yeah. Sailors 100 meter freestyle, <laughs> in which only sailors from Greece, who happened to be sailors, who could enter the competition. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> which country won gold? <laughs> yep. Uh, so Greece won gold, silver, bronze. Well done. And no one lost because only three people entered the race. <laughs> um, we were talking about races and stuff like that in mm. swimming. In 1791, three men swam from Westminster Bridge to London Bridge for an eight-guinea wager. The winner was carried to a pub to celebrate where he drank so much gin he expired. <laughs> oh. Presumably the, the, the other two just split the four guineas each. <laughs> <laughs> I think second place would get it, no? Yeah. <laughs> the people used to swim loads in the Thames, didn't they? Yeah. I read that in 1880 there was a man-dog race in the Thames, uh, and the dog won. Really? Yeah. Really? Um, in so I think Windsor baths were they used to have little bits of the Thames as James said at the start I think like Lido's um, set apart so you could swim in them and they had to move Windsor baths in 1870 because it allowed Queen Victoria a view of the naked men. No. Really? It was wow. inappropriate. Oh, what? They moved it so that she couldn't see it? Yeah. Sorry. No, the way you said it. it sounded it's, like, as it's like in the Olympics how they moved the end of the marathon so that yeah. the Queen could yeah. see the end. The end of the race. And yeah. Victoria's like, I really would like to see those naked men. I read this in a book called Queen Victoria, the Hidden Pervert. <laughs> <laughs> Did you guys see the giant swastika that's been spotted in a swimming pool? So there was a helicopter on a kidnapping mission to retrieve. <laughs> wow. Hang on. Can you imagine when you're you're doing a kidnapping mission, but you're like, but we have to tell someone about this pool. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm so torn. <laughs> like, I've got this letter from someone saying they've taken my child, and also apparently there's a swastika. <laughs> Um, police said the unnamed homeowner would not be charged as the swastika is on private land and was not on display to promote Nazism. Which you do wonder why it was on display. It could have been just a Hindu sign of peace. Which those clumsy, clumsy Tylers put in the wrong way round. (laughs) If I wasn't a Hindu and so peaceful, I'd be furious. Okay, time for fact number two. That's my fact. My fact this week is that sumo wrestling referees carry a knife on them so that in the event that they make a bad decision during a match, they can kill themselves. 
How often does that happen? Do you know, like, it, ha- it hasn't actually happened. Uh, traditionally, the idea so is they've that... they've always made brilliant decisions, or they've thought, <laughs> actually, it was bad, but it wasn't that bad. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, that, okay. Sum- <laughs> sumo wrestler referees, is it's a very high ranking. They actually have rankings. You become the sort of the, the head of sumo wrestling referees. They are the ones who carry the knife. Traditionally, the uh. idea was that they would kill themselves because it was such an honor to be that height. If they do make a bad decision these days, they'll hand in their papers and say, I'm, I'm retiring. So it, it's seen right, as, yeah, right. but the knife is there to remind them that you should kill yourself. <laughs> so if, like, the best football referee, like Howard Webb or someone, would carry it, but all the others wouldn't. Yes, exactly. Right. Yeah. I, I love the idea of a player going, oh, referee. And the referee thinking, you're going, no, you're right. You are right. <laughs> <laughs> so the reason I found this fact is uh, Anna and I were having a drink with her friend Meg. Meg was telling us that sumo wrestlers are incredibly flexible and they can all do the splits. So I went wow. home and Googled that straight away, and they can. If you Google sumo, sumo wrestler splits on the internet, have cool. a field day. It's I think wonderful. it's easier because it's the weight of your torso just jams you right down. <laughs> no, they're incredibly flexible. I assume they have to be athletic because it's, it's a weird double thing, isn't it? Because they're, they're really, really heavy, but also they're very, very athletic. Yeah. 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 It is extremely hardcore, the training, isn't it, in the stables, which is the schools that they kind of train in. And I think one of the bits of training is you get your tutor, you have to do the splits, and then your tutor forces your chest down onto the ground. It's it's amazing. So Anna's just said stables. That's what they call it. It's sumos have a kind of Hogwarts where you get you go. You're like like you've been picked as a sumo wrestler, and you go and you you spend your life. Do you put on the sorting nappy when you go in? <laughs> yeah, and and they they live their lives in there. They they have to. Uh, they do they do sit in class um, wearing uh, nothing except the nappy. When really? you see their lessons, they're just sitting in a class taking notes from the blackboard, and you just got all these huge topless men. What's uh, it called? It has got a proper name. It's an M word, I think. It's the mawashi. Mawashi. Right, okay, and yeah. if you if your mawashi comes off during a fight, then you have to forfeit the fight. There was a thing because obviously people think that it's a bit strange if they haven't seen sumo before that they're wearing what look like nappies yeah um so there was a few years ago they the a few years ago the japanese amateur sumo association announced this plan to let young players compete in shorts and uh because normally you only fight wearing the mawashi yeah and um it was thought it would get more young people involved in it because they have a problem with this is it shorts as well as the mawashi no it's just shorts is what they were saying like you don't have anything to grab onto surely that's an issue like, because they kind of grab onto those. Yeah. Oh, I suppose so. Well, anyway, it didn't happen because the professional body said over our dead body and that <laughs> nobody in shorts would be allowed into youth tournaments. Yeah. So it just completely died yeah. a death, the idea. They, I mean, it's, it's incredible the respect that they have for all of the traditions, yeah. including that. And even the audience, there are no heckles whatsoever. And this goes back to the referee thing. If the referee makes a call, regardless of what an audience member thinks... And regardless of what the sumo wrestler thinks, they just accept it. There's no yelling. There's right, no yeah. contending. It's okay. He called it. That's his job. It must be right. That's good. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. It's a total respect. It's and you have to be a good loser, don't you? And yeah, never betray dissatisfaction with the result. Yeah. And yeah, it's like it's sort of like the polar opposite of a football match, basically. Yeah. It really so is. The crowd yeah. is singing. The referee's an excellent arbiter <laughs> of the rules. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And well, he's got a knife. The most popular referee in the 19th century was called um, well, Everard Digby. <laughs> <laughs> Damn it. Come on, I held that up for you. 
The most prominent referee in the 19th century was called uh, Seagar Bastard. And he... <laughs> <laughs> so that's why referees are bastards. <laughs> I think it might, there was a suggestion of that, but that actually came about about six years after he died. Um, but yeah, and he became known, he was so good, he became known as Knight of the Whistle. So I like to think they maybe called him Sir Bastard after that. Ooh, the yeah. Knight of the Whistle. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Do you want to hear something about the UK sumo scene? Oh, yes, yes please. <laughs> This is from the UK Sumo website, and it's it's also sad. Um, at present, the sport of sumo in the UK has a very limited following. Aww. Regrettably, behind Dover's White Cliffs, there are no known organisations or individuals with any recent training experience at any Japanese sumo clubs or establishments, although one Englishman did once join the sport in Japan. <laughs> the UK is something of a sumo desert. Aww. <laughs> Sad. It is sad, but it's not true for everyone because loads of top sumo wrestlers are Eastern European. Yeah, yeah. Czech Republic's quite popular there, isn't That's it? Amazing. Yeah. And um, of the Yokozunas, which is a top kind of thing, um, there's not any Japanese ones at the moment. I think they're all really? Mongolian. Wow, yeah. really? Yeah. Or I, I think, think so. the la- something like the last 36 competitions have all been won by yeah, yeah non-Japanese people, mainly Mongolian. This is like the England cricket team, isn't it? <laughs> we invent it. Everyone else beats us at it. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, Forever. it's like that because if you look it up. It's exa- the articles are exactly like English yeah. people writing about cricket. Articles are like, what has happened to Japanese sumo wrestling? We're being thrashed by foreigners. And it's a real problem, I think. And it's because it's really unpopular now amongst the youth, isn't it? So the average age of like yeah. a sumo audience is over 60. Um, is and yeah, so not a lot of young, because young people feels prefer to me football as a and country, stuff. The UK, we're we're never going to get cricket back or football back. We should maybe go into um, sumo. (laughs) (laughs) And the standard sumo diet is ten thousand calories a day, I think, Mm. in in their schools, and they get force fed. um, Ten thousand calories a day. Yeah, it's a lot, isn't it? It's a good amount. That is a lot. Um, A blue whale can eat a million calories in one mouthful. So that is what? How many more? It's a thousand times that, is it? It's not a competition between sumo wrestlers <laughs> and blue no, whales. A hundred times more. Hundred times that. Yeah. So a yeah. hundred sumo wrestlers equals one blue whale. Wow. Well, who would miss a day in a mouthful? One blue whale who? mouthful. So a blue whale could eat a hundred sumo wrestlers in, in one, one mouthful. mouthful. That's not yeah. quite what I said. And they do. They often do. That's why the sport is unpopular in Japan at the moment. <laughs> it's very hard to get people to sign up because they the know. Japanese go after the whales all the time. <laughs> <laughs> it's revenge. <laughs> um. So, ex-sumo wrestlers. Yeah. Again, as with, you know, we have footballers over here who go into weird and wacky things after they leave football. Oh, yeah. Um, One of the most famous ones, uh, Konishiki Yasukichi, became a hip-hop artist and hosted a children's TV show. One of my favourites, Yasuyuki Hirose. I got this on an article about ex-sumo wrestlers from The Guardian. He can drink a two-litre bottle of orange Fanta in ten seconds. (laughs) (laughs) That's his trick. He's also in a comedy group, and I quote directly... His obesity-related difficulties are often the topic of the group's jokes. (laughs) I think an alternative comedy revolution might be required. (laughs) That's amazing. Yeah. Ten seconds! Two litres of Orange Fanta. I can't drink two litres in a day. I think I could drink two litres of water in that much time, but Orange Fanta is pretty fizzy. Two litres? How many pints is that? Mm, It's about four, isn't it? Oh, no, I can't do that. I once drank... uh, I think I had to drink four pints for a bet uh, in ten minutes. And I did that, and I was violently sick. Oh, because <laughs> oh. This was, and I was working as a waiter. Uh, <laughs> Excuse me, we asked for some water ages ago. It hasn't arrived. Hawkins <laughs> <laughs> throwing up in the corner. <laughs> 
speaking of, so they're overweight, as I think you mentioned, they have to eat a lot. And I was looking at overweight people in other sports. Oh, and yeah. in the 1952 Olympics, there was no weight. Rest- so there's usually a weight restriction on the bobsleigh. And there was no oh. weight restriction. And only the German team, I think it was, realized that the way to go fast in bobsleigh is obviously to put really heavy people on. And so the average weight of a German bobsleigh entry in the 1952 Olympics was 260 pounds, which is almost 20 stone, isn't it? Whoa. Wow. Yeah. I reckon they learned their lesson from that Olympics and weight restrictions everywhere now. What, what? a shame. <laughs> um, <laughs> so on uh, referees. Oh, yeah. Uh, I did not know, because I know nothing of sport, <laughs> that uh, one man invented yellow cards. And he was called Ken Aston. And he was a really tough referee. He was really good. He was involved in football. He was a football referee. Uh, he was British. And he was, um, I think this was in around the 50s or 60s. But he'd just seen an England-Argentina match, which was so rough that afterwards the Argentinian team tried to break into the English dressing room. Like, that's how bad it got. Wow. And one Argentinian player had been pleading with the ref and just being very passionate about saying that was not a foul, that wasn't offside, whatever it was. And he got sent off for violence of the tongue, was the <laughs> phrase that was used. And as Ken Aston was driving home, he thought there must be a way of punishing someone without just sending them off because there, yeah. be, there must be an intermediate stage. And he said, as I drove down Kensington High Street, the traffic light turned red. I thought, yellow, take it easy. Red, <laughs> stop, you're off. That's so great. it's based on traffic oh, wow. lights. Yeah, wow. which is, I mean, it's what Should you'd be assume. An amber card. It should be an oh, amber yeah. card. That's yeah. what I'm going to call it from now on. Oh, God. <laughs> You're going to be even less popular at football matches. <laughs> <laughs> that was never an amber. <laughs> <laughs> on his uh, ideas list, was there carry a dagger in order to commit suicide <laughs> anywhere? Was it that feature in his brainstorm? Uh, I, w- I once went to a party where the host of the party employed the yellow card, red card system. Did he? Yeah. The idea was what? if you got too drunk, too rowdy, you'd get a yellow card. If you then repeated an offence, you'd get a red card. Oh, what happened God. when you got a red card? You had to go home. Yeah, I had to go home. <laughs> I got red carded. <laughs> I'm, a qualified, tra- I'm a qualified referee, do you know? Are you? Football referee. Really? Yeah. Me. So, what level are you qualified? Could you do a premiership match? <laughs> I did, yeah. I did um, <laughs> Arsenal versus Swansea this week. Yeah. That explains <laughs> it. But he's not allowed on the pitch anymore because of his new amber card system, <laughs> which has <is>, uh, <laughs> met some resistance. <laughs> James was actually a very successful referee for a long time, but he was fired after drinking all the halftime water. <laughs> Four players died of thirst. (laughs) Okay, time for fact number three, and that is Harkin. Uh, My fact this week is a trailer for the longest movie ever made has just been released, and it's 72 minutes long. Wow. Is, I like to think that the film is just 73 minutes and they had a terrible editor. Is that the case? <laughs> There's a lot of spoilers in this trailer. <laughs> no, sadly, the movie is 30 days long. <laughs> is it? Uh, the guy who's making this film, I looked him up a bit. He's called Anders Weberg, is that right? That's right, yeah. And he said it would be an abstract, non-linear narrative summary of the artist's time spent with the moving image. Sounds great. And that it will show how space and time is intertwined into a surreal, dreamlike journey beyond places. Are there any action scenes? <laughs> I don't know if there's a chase. <laughs> yeah, car chase. Um, and isn't it going to be screened just once? Yeah, um, I think that's the plan, yeah. Although, you know, due to popular demand, they might <laughs> roll it out. DVD sales might be huge. You get <laughs> yeah. 10 DVDs in the post. It's, it's supposedly, it's going to be screened just once on every continent from the 31st of December 2020 onwards, so it's not hit out for a while. Yeah. And then it's going to be destroyed. So it's, I mean, By it's, the audiences. Yeah. <laughs> it sounds terrible. Has anyone watched the trailer? 
No. No. <laughs> Basically, I, there's not enough time to watch a 72-minute trailer, is there really? You can imagine going into the cinema to watch another film, and this trailer comes on, and for the first couple of minutes, you're really into it. <laughs> like, by 45 minutes in, you're thinking... God, the trailers, they're going for ages these days, don't they? Uh, I really like in, um, in trailers now, they do this, they, they've been doing it for a long time, actually. They show bits of movie that never make it to the final movie. Oh, really? Yeah. So okay. many movies, because they'll, they'll release a trailer while they're still cutting the movie. And then a decision right. will be made when the final movie edit is happening. We don't need that scene. And then they just go, that's fine. We, it doesn't matter that it's in the trailer. Yeah. So like, famously, a lot of people know this about this particular movie, but there's a movie called The Transporter. Or transporter, oh, yeah, I've seen that. Uh, yeah, Jason Statham. That's right. In the movie, they did not include a classic scene in the trailer, and it oh, is a classic really? scene in the trailer where a missile is launched to Jason Statham, and he deflects it using a tea tray. Using a tennis, oh, a tea tray. I was yep. going to say something. Small, he just yeah. smacks it out of the way, like not interested. That's <laughs> amazing. Yeah. That, wh- why was that not put in the final film? Because Jason Statham, I think, said <laughs> no one's going to believe this, and so, but it made that they filmed it. Like he didn't point that out before shooting it. <laughs> he saw it in the script and went, "That's fantastic." Yeah. Um, but I. I I continued reading. I found this on IMDb. I continued yeah. reading uh, just movie trivia for that uh, particular movie. Can I give you a couple? <laughs> yes. yes, please. Okay. So um, one of them is that uh, in the garage scene, what was thought to be transmission oil was in fact molasses syrup. Oh, yeah. Jason Statham reported to be a very sticky situation. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> and then uh, underneath the tea tray knocking the missiles away uh, to facts below it says that jason statham did most of his own stunts <laughs> is that great <laughs> um weirdly there's an inventor of trailers didn't know that is that yeah very famously a guy called nils granland and he made the first trailer and it was for a play called the pleasure seekers and it was in 1913 oh. so he wanted people to come see the play so he thought he would shoot incidents from the play and they and they showed it and then they realized that this was a fantastic idea yeah. so they applied it to movies and he meant he then made the first ever trailer for a movie which was for a charlie chaplin movie really wow. yeah so chaplin had the first ever trailer is it right that they're called trailers because they used to go after the movie yes they used to trail the movie exactly really? they would trail the movie and get you excited about the next thing you could go and see and then presumably they stopped doing that because people just left <laughs> one of the things i find weird is that the director who's doing the film you're talking about um yeah. wayberg yeah is he's only ever done short films. So this is quite a big step, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. And for my next film. <laughs> That's he's missed out that in-between step. He really has. I have attached all the short films to each other <laughs> to make a mega film. Um, but the runner-up, so the longest film ever um, until... It, well, the, long, the current longest film ever, because yeah, this one hasn't been released be, yet. Yeah, this one will be in the future, won't yeah. it? Yeah is um, Modern Times Forever and it's a finished <laughs> film. It's 240 hours long and IMDb describes its plotline as the ever-slow decay of Helsinki's Stora Enzo headquarters building. So that's what Modern mm. Times Forever is about. It sounds yeah. a really good film. Get a 6.4 on IMDb. <laughs> it's how the um, headquarters are going to decay over the next few thousand years. I think they projected it onto the building itself, didn't they? How oh, did they? So. so you could kind of watch it happen as if it's happened. Oh, wow. Oh. That's harsh as well. That's harsh for the building. Well, the building didn't mind. Yeah, like yeah. someone projecting your own gruesome death onto you or something. Yeah. As you're just <laughs> hanging out in the street. That's true. Okay, so have you heard of Don LaFontaine? No. Okay, he is the man. He's dead now, unfortunately, but he was the one who's very famous for doing trailer voices. 
Oh. He's done more than 5,000 film trailers, and his famous catchphrase is, in a world. In yes. a world. Yeah. Because there was a film that happens. satirized that, wasn't there? Was oh, there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. With Lake Bell. Yes. Yeah, yeah. In a um, world. Yeah. That's so cool. Yeah, he was a really, really amazing guy. Um, his voice cracked at the age of 13 mid-sentence. His final role on television was in the Phineas and Ferb episode, The Chronicles of Meep. And he says the final line he ever said, which was, in a world, there, I said it, happy. Oh, really? <laughs> that was his last, last thing. This is really cool. This is a thing that almost predates, in fact, it definitely predates film. It's a kind of early version of a movie. Okay. This is so fantastic. It was a 19th century showman, right? His name was John Banvard. And he invented this show which consisted of a 1,320-foot-long painting of the Mississippi, right? Mm. It was a mural, and it was on two spindles, like a VHS cassette, right? So as the course of the, so at the start of the show, it was all on one spindle, and then you pull it across to the other spindle, and you start winding the other one around, and it pulls it across like a tape, like a videotape, mm. but it shows this moving panorama of the river, and he would do a show for about, you know, for two hours telling stories about what was on the river and his wife played music as it went and he was telling, you know, adventure stories and all the things that were happening. Was there stuff on the river, like pictures of boats and fish? I think so, things? yeah, 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 exactly. Okay. It wasn't, I, think, I think it wasn't Otherwise. just <laughs> muddy, I think it wasn't just water for two hours and mm. 1,000 feet. But isn't that amazing? It was, a, yeah, it was this incredible long panorama and it was basically a very, very early proto-film. Yeah. When was that, did you say? That was in the, 19th, that was in the mid-19th century, so, you know, 50 years yeah, before cool. Blumier and Medias. Yeah. Yeah. I remember reading about him in a book called Banvard's Folly. Have you heard of that? No. Uh, not much more to say about it, apart from everyone should read it, because it is a brilliant book. Okay. It's yeah, just really? about famous people from history who were famous at the time, but then have been completely forgotten. <gasps> oh, wow. That's brilliant. Yeah, that sounds awesome. Great, such a great book. Yeah. That's really cool. Yeah. Who is Banvard? Uh, he was the he guy was this, he was this guy. Been talking about. I've been talking about him for a minute. Have you? Also, yeah. How'd yeah. it go? Oh, was, uh, I, not great. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so before they had the talkies, they had the silent films, and there was one patent that I found um, for the idea of getting the dialogue across without being able to have the sound, yep. and that was to have speech <laughs> bubbles that came out of actors' mouths like a party blower. Wow. So, <laughs> if you wanted to say good evening, Mr. Schreiber, then I would blow this party bubble and it, you'd be able to see the words and then it would come back and then you'd say, oh, nice to meet you, Mr. Hagen. That is so... As I've never filming. heard of that. Yeah. That's fantastic. That's amazing. Yeah, that would be really cool. They never did it, but it was a patent. That, I love that. I, in, a, in a, somewhere, in some alternative universe, that is still how we're doing it. <laughs> yeah. That's because, the only difference between this universe yeah. and that one. <laughs> because it was tried and it was just so good. It's so much fun to watch. That's how all news reading is done. Yeah. Because it lightens bad news, doesn't it? So no one a took balloon. it seriously. That's so amazing. would the actors, so the actors would have to pause, pull it out of their pocket, uh, put it in their mouth. Make sure they get the right one. <laughs> and also, you'd run out of puff very fast. Yeah. <laughs> like, after a while, you'd be. <gasps> yeah. <gasps> for a for a monologue now is the winter of our discontent <laughs> <laughs> um, one of the great silent film directors of the 1920s was this guy called Eric von Stroheim and okay. I really like him because have you guys seen Sunset Boulevard yes you have I love it so he's yeah me too so he is the main character in that he wasn't really an actor but he was a director in the silent film generation and Sunset Boulevard is all about the decline of silent films about this woman who's you know as big in the silent film age yeah. and her downfall and her servant is played by this huge director and 
and it always feels really poignant when you watch it because it's actually about his decline and his demise. Right. But what I also quite like about Eric von Stroheim is that he created the best film ever made, apparently, what? in 1924. Really? What in 1924, it? so not that many films. But it's called Greed, and it was another long one. So it was eight hours long, and okay. it was only watched by 12 people in the end. And most and of those 12 people... the best people, movie ever. Yeah, because it was watched by 12 people, and then people decided people aren't going to go and see this. So it was wow. edited down by his producers, and he what? was really angry about that. And they've lost the original oh. eight-hour film reel, but apparently this is the holy grail of like movies movie reels this is the greatest film ever made according to those 12 people wow that's great so where has it gone like literally no one knows (laughs) if we knew that then it wouldn't be the holy grail is what i mean are there there theories about so so where is the holy grail (laughs) (laughs) i have a weird um sort of this isn't really related but it's to do with missing film as well which is a holy grail of missing film as well um when Mallory was found on Everest because they found his body, oh, yeah. the big hope was that they were going to find on him his camera. Yeah, didn't have his camera because on him. That would prove whether he'd been to the top or not. The mm-hmm. idea is, if they made it there, they would have just taken a photo. Yeah. That was the hope, and they could have seen on the camera. They might have found there were no photos, but the idea is maybe it was he didn't have the camera on him, <laughs> which means that Irving, who's the other missing one of the two of Mallory and Irving, was up there. He must have the camera on him. And Kodak have said, because of the way and the nature of the height and the coldness that's going on, that if that film is still out there, it can still be developed, but only for a few more years. So they're desperately trying to oh, find wow. it because it may hold the answer to whether or not they got up there. We've got to get out there. But isn't it amazing? Because that's from the 20s. There's like, bloody that's... built-in obsolescence in technology these days where they say it'll definitely run out after 90 years. <laughs> I'm really sick of it. Yeah. <laughs> if anyone's ever been up to the top of Everest and not taken a photo... I reckon. Um, I bet it's so cold and uncomfortable, and you've got to take your gloves off. And I would when... take a photo of my thumb. That's what I'd do. <laughs> oh, yeah. This is my nice. thumb at the top of Everest. Nice. Yeah. Do but... a thumbs up or thumbs down? <laughs> <laughs> Not what it's cracked up to be, yeah. guys. <laughs> Trip advisor, two stars. <laughs> uh, Hillary, when he got up there, he took a piss. So I'm just saying he got something out straight away. Okay. Despite the cold. Uh, he didn't yeah. take a photo of it. <laughs> it wasn't That'd that sort be... of trip. <laughs> okay, time for our final fact of the show, and that is Andrew Hunter Murray. My fact. Uh, actually, this comes from, we did a live show in Brussels a while ago, and uh, someone from the audience volunteered this fact, and it was so fantastic that I wrote it in my files and have only just rediscovered it. So... This is the fact. It's that in the Middle Ages, uh, lots of churches had statues of Jesus which had moving arms so that he could be taken down from the cross and carried around the church. And there were other statues which had uh, the Virgin Mary with a working belly and you could take out a model of the infant Christ. So these these were four ceremonies in churches. So things like Easter, Good Friday, you'd, you'd have the model of the Christ on the cross. Yeah. And you'd take it down and you'd carry it to uh, a, a version of his tomb, for oh. example. So the arms had to be fold downable so that you could move him and carry him. And there is an incredible, I think it's a book on this. It's about 300 pages long. It's huge. It's called Animated Sculptures of the Crucified Christ. And it's incredible scholarly work, which denotes every single one all across the world. There are 126 which exist still. Um... The vast majority were made between 1490 and 1530. It's as though they became huge and then immediately yeah. you know, disappeared. 
Wow. Oh, yeah, most like of wood. Pogs. Like pogs, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like when pogs are used in Easter to exactly. represent the crucified Christ, yes. Yeah. There's that really gruesome statue in Mexico, isn't there, which is a, a statue of Jesus and he's covered in blood and stuff and it's when he's just been crucified. And they recently did an x-ray of it and they realised that his teeth are real human teeth. Whoa. And we don't really? know why. That it's is really disgusting. Wow. Is it like human-sized or does he have a massive mouth? <laughs> <laughs> what, you mean is he like a tiny doll Jesus? <laughs> Yeah, with, with life-size human that, he probably is life-size he's life-size yeah he's normal human size and he's yeah it's a grotesque statue but why are there human incisors in his well, mouth I read about that and supposedly it was a custom a few centuries ago to donate body parts of yours not for science but for religion Ah. You donate them to the church wow, for religion. so you be- could have like um, a statue of Jesus with lots of different body parts from different people I don't, I don't think that was ever done because that's no. incredibly gruesome. Yeah. <laughs> Although this teeth but one teeth is real. Like, yeah. yeah. And it was, yeah, it was 18th century and I think they were donated by people as a way of showing their gratitude to Christ. Yeah. So what other ways could you give your body to? <laughs> so people would give their own hair and that could be used as sort of wigs and things like that. Oh, um, right. Another statue of the baby Jesus has rabbit's teeth in it. It's really okay. peculiar. Also, Jesus has got these two buck tooth <laughs> teeth out the front. Yeah. Yeah. What's up, God? <laughs> um, so some of these other ones that were in churches in the Middle Ages, uh, some of them had movable arms, as I say. Some of them had uh, mechanisms to open and close uh, Christ's eyes. Wow. Yeah, and they were. some of them were quite detailed and ad- sort of advanced in terms of modelling and puppetry. Just out of curiosity, is this like an early action man? Like, is that would that have inspired... I'd, how toys move. Well, okay, is is not as silly as it sounds because early marionettes were the, based on the Virgin Mary. Is that why they're called marionettes? Yes. Ah. The marionette comes from Little yeah. Mary because it was a model of the Virgin Mary which was used in devotional plays to show, um, to, to teach children about religion, basically, That's and really some grown-ups. Fact. Yeah. yeah. Oh. So depictions of Jesus, yeah. so early depictions of Jesus, quite interesting because... Um, in the very early days, people were very iffy about depicting him as a person because it was thought of being idolatrous, and oh, that yeah. was yeah. a no-no. Uh, so he was shown as a fifth. Uh, he was shown as a fish. As a Sith. Uh, <laughs> he was shown as a fish because, you know, um, Ichthus yep. was yeah. the, the uh, acronym that they used. Is that yeah, right? Yeah, it was an old way of um, Catholics talking to each other about Catholicism. Yeah, supposedly you'd draw a fish, and that was the sign that you were oh, a Christian. Okay, right. If someone else dotted the I, that was the sign they were a Christian, and then you could talk properly, oh, okay, you know. right. Um, and in some depictions of Jesus, these are about 5th century AD, he has a magic wand. Wow. Oh, wow. Which he uses Is to do all euphemism? his miracles. No, 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 it's not. He uses it to turn the water to wine and to raise Lazarus from the dead That's and to great. create the loaves and the fishes. Wow. That's so Isn't cool. That incredible? Do you know, years ago, James was telling me that there are lost gospels and yeah. within those, um, one of them, Jesus fights a dragon. Yeah, they're called the infancy gospels. Uh, and they're like gospels which were written around the site around the time of today's gospels but they were never used in the official Matthew, Mark, Luke and John kind of thing Mm -hmm. and there is one where he kills dragons uh, another one where he explodes snakes and another one where he kills a boy who accidentally brushed against him Wow. Whoa. These sound much more exciting. Why weren't these the guys that were being published? I bet they were disappointed. They sound a bit like young Jesus adventures. You know how you get young Indiana Jones and young James Bond things? Yeah. Yeah. They sound a bit like the adventures of young. Like fan fiction. (laughs) (laughs) 
Yeah. The idea, I think, is that he does like slightly that with the child brushing against him. I think the idea is that he started and he was quite angry, angry, but then eventually he turned into a good, peaceful person. I think that's the God. transformation. Oh. But you can see why those were not sort of turned into proper gospel doctrine. I can see why they left the dragon ones out. Yeah. yeah. Censorship is what that was, really, wasn't it? <laughs> Um, I think this is cool. Speaking of statues, um, the statue of David, Michelangelo's statue of David, three of the four turtles were involved in the making of it. Leonardo, Michelangelo, <laughs> Donatello. Yes. So Raphael wasn't. Raphael wasn't involved. Um, in Where fact, was Splinter for all of this? <laughs> such a good question. He was masterminding the whole thing. Um, so the statue of David was commissioned about 100 years before it was actually built. And Donatello was one on the sort of committee that decided it had to be built. And his students had some attempts and they cocked it up. And eventually uh, there was a sort of people applied to uh, be the one who got to design the statue of David. And Leonardo da Vinci was considered but rejected. And oh. Michelangelo was accepted. And he made it in two years and everyone agreed it was this must piece but i quite enjoy that that is totally awesome dude (laughs) (laughs) except leonardo wasn't like that because there was a committee that had to decide where to put it so at the moment it's outside the huge entrance of the duomo cathedral in florence um really prominent place um and the committee decided to put it there but leonardo da vinci was on that committee and he suggested that they put it in a little niche on the side of a much less well-known building where it would be completely obscured Wow. Because I'm guessing a little bit of professional jealousy. Yeah, it must be, right? Yeah. That's yeah, that's great. Um, I was looking into a statue that I've known since childhood, which has been a famous one for me. Do you remember when Michael Jackson released his Hiss Story album and he made that, those huge right. giant statues of himself? Do you remember? Right. I don't know, but okay, yeah, yeah. They So... They made ten massive statues of Michael Jackson, I which became them, yeah definitely. became the cover, and and it was on the Thames. They they floated it through the Thames, and wow. yeah, it was. I mean, it was a. It's, it, anyone except you knows. Well, it. I hope they got permission <laughs> from the Port of London Authority. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I was just people like, going down water slides. And just <laughs> <laughs> I was just looking into it, like where because those were huge. I think they were like thirty feet high. Where have they gone? And nine of them. We don't know where they've gone, which is really interesting. Wow. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, we do know where one is. It's at the best McDonald's, um, which is... Is that uh, a personal opinion? No, it's actually a town called Best um, <laughs> that bought it. And so... Excellent. Um, the nearby town of Worst doesn't yeah. get nearly as much. And in between the two, second best. <laughs> yeah. So it stands currently at McDonald's Best parking lot. And uh, it's become a big gathering place for Michael Jackson fans. And actually, I've got it slightly wrong. There are two that are known of that still exist. The other one, the pedestal that they made to put Michael Jackson on, was using all of the statue stones from a very famous Stalin monument called the Cue from Meat. Do you remember that? It was that extraordinary famous Stalin monument. I think about, I know the one you mean. Yeah, it's it's if if you go, if you Google Stal- Stalin monument, it's incredibly famous, and they use that to make a thing for Michael Jackson to stand on. Um, did you guys read about the Ottoman statue taking a selfie? What? Uh, who <laughs> what? was there? Was a statue that was recently erected. It was in the city of Amasya. Uh, Amasya. I don't know how to pronounce that. Anyway, it's on it's on the Black Sea, um, and it was a statue of an old Ottoman prince, and he's taking a selfie of himself with a smartphone. And I guess yeah. it's supposed to represent the glory of Ottoman princes, and also meant to be a bit hip and down That's with the great. times. It's not that great because people were really angry about it and thought that it kind of demeaned um, the iPhones. Ottoman. 
So they, within 24 hours of the statue being put up, um, they've broken off his smartphone and most of his sword. It's been destroyed. No, there was a thing though. There was a there was a trend of taking photos because you know how ancient statues are often stretching out a hand. Oh yeah. Yeah. There's a trend for taking photos in that position to show what the selfie of the statue looks like. Yeah, great. Yeah. That's a good trend. It's a great trend. Well done, the people. Did you guys read about the 45-foot statue of Pope John Paul that was commissioned by uh, (laughs) this guy called Lezek Lyson? And basically, he, this guy, saved the life of his own son, who was who fell into a lake when they were on holiday in Croatia, I think, or fell into the sea. And he decided that that was thanks to the Pope. And so he commissioned and paid for a 45-foot tall fiberglass bright white statue of Pope John Paul II to be erected. Um, And it's disgusting. (laughs) Why did he think it was thanks to the Pope? Because uh, I guess it's God and the Pope is the Pope. Or the, is the Pope God's sort of spokesman. came to him in his hour of need and gave him the courage to save his son. Yeah, I guess so. Cool. I mean, I think he should give himself more credit. But I like it. So another. <laughs> you say, yeah, but you can imagine the headlines: local dickhead builds statue of himself after saving son from drowning. <laughs> local dickhead. They should do that more in local papers. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, that's it. That's all of our facts. Thank you so much for listening. If you want to get in contact with us about the things that we have said over the course of this podcast, you can get us on Twitter. I'm on at Schreiberland. Andy? At Andrew Hunter M. Uh, James? At Everard Digby. (laughs) And Chazinski? You can email everarddigby at (laughs) qi.com. We'll be back again next week with another episode. We'll see you then. Goodbye. Goodbye.